Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 20 of the podcast, History Does You. Today, we'll be covering the Battle of Passchendaele, and we had an interview with Dr. Nick Lloyd. But before we get to that, as always, feel free to follow us or subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or you can follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook. And to start off, this is our season finale of episode 20. Uh, It's kind of crazy to think that (laughs) this is a project I started in January and, you know, 20 episodes later, I'm really still enjoying the process. I sort of bounce back and forth about different things that I'm passionate about, but this is something I've really enjoyed doing over the last couple of months and something that I'm going to keep doing until, you know, (laughs) whatever happens. But uh, regardless, uh, this is our, it's nice to end our season on the, well, not nice, but we cover the First World War, so we've been able to cover, you know, such a wide variety of topics um, and interview such, you know, a wide variety of different historians and authors and experts, um, and I've really enjoyed that. I think that's something that, you know, being able to sort of get their opinion and who I think have put in tons of time and work and research to really understand and write about whatever topic, you know, they're an expert in is really cool. And also, you know, understanding history's impact on, you know, today is super important. And, you know, the first world war, I think is the first true significant event that would shape, you know, the 20th century and really up until the 21st century. I think that, The First World War was the first truly industrialized war and, you know, the scale of just the casualties and the way the war was fought was just something that had never really been seen before. And that, you know, it's still one of those events that I think people are still trying to understand uh, because it sort of was just an event that spiraled out of control and all started with the assassination of, you know, a, uh, a high ranking Austrian Hungarian official. And then it escalated into what we know now as the great war. And to kind of provide background, uh, the war, or at least in the battle of passion, the war had already been raging for pretty much three years by the winter of 1914, it was pretty obvious to all of the powers involved that it was not going to be a quick war. All of the great powers had designed their armies and their uh, their plans around this idea that the war would be over in a matter of months, not a matter of years. So pretty much everyone was you know, building their armies and trying to adjust on the fly. And by the time of 1917, there had been ginormous battles on the Western and the Eastern Front. You know, millions of casualties had already been uh, suffered on both sides, but the battlefields really hadn't changed. And, you know, by this time at, in, in 1917, you know, the Russian Empire was on the verge of collapsing. The, you know, the Ottoman Empire and the Austrian-Hungarian Empire were, you know, shells of their former selves. So at this point, the German Empire was pretty much fighting by itself. And the British had really begun to take over the, not the majority, but most of the fighting on the Western front. Obviously the French had been fighting in very uh, costly battles throughout 1915 through 1916. And by this point they were being pushed to the brink. So 
really it was up to the British to sort of try and make the, you know, quote unquote, you know, push or, you know, fight a decisive battle and seek that sort of breakthrough that had been, you know, that mystery that the eyes had been seeking to solve for the previous three years. So um, I won't talk too much more. You know, I will definitely cover more uh, episodes and events during the First World War. It's super important. Uh, so, yeah, hope you enjoy the interview. On today's episode, we welcome on Dr. Nick Lloyd, who is professor in military and imperial history in the Defense Studies Department at King's College in London. He's the author of four books, Loose 1915, The Armory Star Massacre, The Untold Story, One Fateful Day, 100 Days, The End of the Great War, and Passchendaele, uh, The Lost Victory of World War I. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thank you for having me. And to start off, what is your favorite part of history to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you become so interested in uh, the First World War? Well, it's uh, going to be no surprise, but the First World War is the most, uh, is the, the period of history that I guess I'm most fascinated with. Um, I think for a number of reasons. I mean, I had family connections. I had family involvement in the war. So that obviously... Um, that was sort of an early influence, I suppose, on me. It, it was it was a period of history that um, we'd lost uh, at least one. I mean, we definitely knew one. When my great uncle was killed and we knew um, there were other people in the family that had been through it and had suffered from it. Um, so for certainly for Britain and maybe not so much for America, but certainly for Britain, the First World War is, is one of those great moments in history. It's a sort of before and after. Um, it's a great tragedy. Um, from which all of the subsequent tragedies came. So the First World War is this big event. It's this big scar in British, certainly modern British history. So that always attracted me to it. And what are some of the challenges that you have encountered while researching uh, in history? Well, I think there's a number of challenges. I mean, this in terms of challenges is trying to get, um, you know, access to the right material. You know, you can spend a lot of time uh, going around the houses trying to find bits and bobs so you can't find it or you 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 know what you want to find but the sources don't have it or some of the sources you know you think they're going to be really good and actually there's not a lot of information in there so again it can take a lot of time to drill down and find what you need and and then eventually that emerges i think one of the misconceptions about historical research is uh, some people think that you will you will go to the archive and you'll find that uh, needle in a haystack. You will find the one piece of missing evidence that will redefine everything. And um, you see this in the movies all the time, of course. But in reality, what I think it is, is, is you go and you build up an, a body of knowledge and you begin to gradually build it up. And then eventually you might see anomalies. You might see things which pique your interest. And over time, you gradually come to a conclusion about you know, whatever subject you're you're um, you're looking at, but it's very rare that you get that kind of eureka moment. It's it's often a gradual process that things begin to make sense, maybe in a different way, or you began to build up that uh, body of evidence which perhaps suggests a different interpretation of things. So that's a challenge. You know, that's a great joy of historical research is what attracts you to it. Um, so there's those kind of things. I mean, archive work is is whether things change now. If if a lot of archives tend to go online. Uh, that might change things. But the physical act of going to archives and spending money and spending long hours in the archives is, is a real challenge. But at the same time, it's it can be a great joy. 
and to kind of get into the First World War and the Battle of Passchendaele, which we'll be talking about today, uh, what had been kind of going on in the previous year uh, during the First World War in 1916? Yeah, I think one of the things that attracted me to Passchendaele was the fact that it hadn't really been researched that much. And you get, and certainly in 1916 on the Western Front we're talking about here, it's the year of Verdun and it's the year of the Somme. And so that year had had a lot of attention for, for many people there. The 1916 battles really epitomized the war in all its, its, its sort of evilness and, and horrific uh, nature of trench warfare. Um, and you have these two twin battles, these enormous um, trench warfare attritional struggles. Uh, the French fight at Verdun from February to December 1916. And, and that battle is the battle that um, certainly is one of the most well-known battles of the war. Um, but it's, it's Germany's attempt to bleed France white. Ultimately, that fails. But it's it's a battle whose consequences, you know, really go on to the following years. For the British, the Somme in 1916 is a crucial battle. Uh, it's a battle where the British army is finally now on the Western Front in, in you know, in, in numerical strength. And it's the, it's the battle that's attended to win the war. And of course, it doesn't do that. So the Somme is a year of great tragedy within Britain, certainly the first day of the battle, the 1st of July 1916, which is the worst day in the British Army's history. And the, the, the legend and the myth of the 1st of July 1916 really seeped really deeply into British national consciousness. So these two events really, um, they go on to have huge impact on the, the subsequent, you know, what happens next in the war, but also on the way that the war is remembered in subsequent generations. And to kind of get into some of the events, uh, 1917, uh, did the Russian Revolution affect any Allied plans on the Western Front or did it not affect it at all? Well, what you have is at the end of 1916, you know, you've had these great indecisive battles. The front has not really moved. Um, but of course, there's been huge developments in the East where Russia's collapse. Uh, it's not an immediate collapse, but you have obviously have a February Revolution. And really from the spring of 1917, Russia is not capable of any kind of operations. So it's at this point where you get that great shift. You get the Russians effectively going out and uh, the Americans coming in with the um, the German adoptation of uh, unrestricted submarine warfare. And, of course, the attempt to bring Mexico in against uh, the Americans, which is, again, is a very... Uh, it's a very bad decision by the Germans, but it's actually these two enormous, you know, these these events of sort of great pivotal events in the 20th century don't seem to have that much of an impact on uh, the strategy of Britain and France, because France has decided that they cannot really survive much longer on the Western Front with high casualty rates. And therefore, they they gamble on the appointment of a new commander, uh, Robert Nivelle, who had done well. Uh, at Verdun as a, a corps commander and then later as an army commander. But he is promoted to be uh, commander in chief. And then he wants to fight a decisive battle in the spring of 1917 that will break the Germans and will win. Um, but of course, this fails. Um, but when Nivelle is presented with the, uh, the news that the Americans are going to come into the war, this is about a week before his offensive is due to go in. He doesn't really change his plans at all. He says, well, they're not really relevant. So the Russian Revolution and the American entry, those two great um, sort of lightning rod moments where the war really changes, don't necessarily have that much of an impact, at least initially, on Allied strategy. 
And to kind of follow up about uh, Nivelle, um, how did the failure of his offensive affect uh, British plans and just overall um, the overall theater on the Western Front? Well, Nivelle, of course, wants to win the war in a 48-hour period. Uh, he wants a smashing blow on the Chiminde Dam that will break the German army in two. And the British um, remain quite skeptical of this. Uh, they don't really necessarily like Nivelle that much. They see him as a bit of an upstart, overpromoted. Um, and they would have preferred a, you know, maybe a continuation of the Psalm or something else. Um, but in any way, what you have is a, is a sort of a, a conference at Calais in February. This is before Nivelle's offensive actually goes in, where the British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, effectively tries to subordinate Field Marshal Haig, British Commander-in-Chief, to Nivelle. Um, because David Lloyd George does not like Haig, he does not trust him. So he tries this sort of subterfuge, um, which produces this great scandal, this great controversy. And the British generals never trust Lloyd George again because they don't want to serve under the French. This is you know, a great insult. Um, but they agree that they will mount a subsidiary operation at Harass, where they will try to attract German reserves a week before Nivelle's attack goes in. But the understanding is that if this fails, the battle will be called off and then the British will be free to do what they want for the rest of the year. And of course, Field Marshal Haig, once he, he sort of agrees to this, uh, he doesn't really want to, but he says, OK, fine. Um, he's very much looking at an offensive in the north in Flanders. Um, that's what he wants to fight. But of course, he's not able to do that because he has to support Nivelle. However, once the Nivelle offensive fails, and I write about this at the beginning of the book, Haig then feels free to start to, it's almost like flexing his independence to say, well, we, you know, the French have had their time, now it's our time. So Haig begins to plan the offensive at Fla in Flanders, uh, which will, of course, become the, the Battle of Passchendaele. And to kind of follow up on uh, Douglas Haig, how did he, or can, can, you, can you describe who he was and how he kind of ascended to become commander of, the commander-in-chief of the British forces? Yes. Um, Douglas Haig is the most controversial commander in British military history. There's no one quite like him. He's been the subject of sustained debates, controversy, disagreement for, you know, ever since the war finished. Um, a dour Presbyterian Scot, a man who uh, is regarded as an educated soldier, in the words of John Terrain, probably his more, foremost biographer. Um, a man who took war seriously. War was an, a science. War was you know, required key thinking and clear thinking. Haig is a cavalryman. Um, he has, I write about this in the book a little bit, quite a traditional view of warfare, as many of those generals at the time did. The idea in the warfare, the fundamental factors in warfare are human and moral. It is all about moral willingness to fight, willingness to sacrifice. And that is really the crucial factor which defines victory and defeat. Now, this is not to say that the generals didn't or Hay did not understand tactics or one modern technology, but they see war in that way. And Hay gets a reputation as a thinking man, as a man who is able to um, understand modern warfare, but also being able to, um, again, have that sort of traditional understanding as well. So he's um, he takes uh, the first corps to France in 1914 and seems to perform reasonably well. Again, seen as a relatively stoic, solid, uh, relatively unemotional character. Um, 
The commander-in-chief at the time is Sir John French, who is quite mercurial. He's quite temperamental. Um, Haig describes Sir John French as a, it's like a bottle of fizzy water that shook up too much. He's, he's too emotional. He's too volatile. Um, French struggles to square the circle that the British always have on the Western Front to support the French, to support the French enough without endangering the expeditionary force, to do enough to keep the French happy, but without sacrificing the expeditionary force. And Sir John struggles with this. Um, and Sir John really mentally and emotionally is worn out by the end of 1915. Haig is the natural, obvious replacement. So at the um, beginning of 1916, he's put in charge and he takes over the British Expeditionary Force and he carries it through to the end of the war. And how did the British High Command kind of come to choose uh, the area uh, around uh, Flanders to kind of carry out its offensive in 1917? Well, the the main, the fundamental reason is one of strategy. Um, the British go into the war because of Belgian in, into independence. The in German invasion of Belgium is the main reason. So British strategic interests are more naturally drawn to the north, to channel ports, the English Channel, Belgium. Um, and Sir John French had thought about attacking in, in the north. Um, but obviously in 1916, they get drawn with a joint Anglo-French offensive on the Somme. Um, by this point, Haig is, is really wanting to try again in Flanders and see whether they can do something there. Even a small advance in Flanders is much more interesting and strategically important to the British than a relatively small advance in France over French countryside that no one really cares about. Belgium is of crucial strategic importance to the British. You also have the growing nervousness about submarine and U-boat activity in the channel ports, around the channel ports. And if you can push the German line back, even a small distance, this will make it more difficult for their U-boats to, to gain egress into the channel. So this is a this sort of a naval aspect to it as well. But um, Haig believes that he can attack in Flanders and he can break the German line. There are crucial rail links that he wants to aim at. Either it forces the Germans to fight, where they'll take heavy casualties, or they will have to give it up, which will potentially have greater strategic slash political ramifications. And can you briefly describe some of the previous fighting that have been going on in Flanders um, and specifically at uh, the Ypres? Yes, um, Flanders had been uh, the subject of a very terrible fighting in 1914, because what you have in 1914 is where you have the Battle of the Marne, um, so the east of Paris, uh, the great turning point of the war of the German invasion in 1914. Then uh, both the Allies and the Germans then begin to sort of leapfrog to the north to try and outflank each other. So they try and outflank each other. And in, in essentially, you have what they call the race to the sea, where they're trying to move left and obviously the Germans to move right as quickly as possible. So by the end of 1914, you have a continuous line of trenches from Newport on uh, the English Channel, on the North Sea, uh, all the way down to the Swiss border. So uh, the German high command want to try and this is in, in, in the closing days of 1914 they want to try and break the line so they push a load of divisions into Flanders um, and they attack the British and the French that have moved up there so that's the first battle of Ypres there's very heavy casualties uh, but ultimately the line is held um, the second battle of Ypres is in the spring of 1915 when the Germans uh, 
are trying to move quite a lot of units to the Eastern Front against Russia. So they need a kind of distraction uh, on the West and the German high command used poison gas. So they mount a sort of limited attack at Ypres uh, using chlorine, uh, using cylinders of chlorine gas, which is the first use of poison gas in the First World War. Um, so that's the second Battle of Ypres. And really since then, there had not been that much going on. The, the sort of focal, the focus of the fighting moves elsewhere on the front. So it becomes not necessarily a quiet sector. It is always an active sector, uh, but it's a sector where there's no, there's no major battles going on. There's quite a lot of tunneling and trench warfare, but no major battles. And it's at this point where you have the, the focus of the war then returns to Flanders in the summer of 1917. And um, on the flip side, what were the uh, German plans both on the Western Front and in Flanders in 1917? Well, the German plan, um, they have made quite a major strategic retreat on the Western Front in the early months of 1917. This is before Nivelle's offensive. They have retreated to the so-called Hindenburg Line, which is a series of very strong defensive positions in the West. It shortens their lineup, allows them to conserve divisions and hold that line in a more efficient way. So the decision has been made in 1917 that they are going to stand on the defensive in uh, France. They're going to let submarine warfare do its job and hopefully starve the Allies, but they're going to hold on in the Western Front and... Of course, as the year goes on, the idea of actually finishing the war in the East becomes much more realizable. Um, but the, the decision is they just have to hold out on land and hope that the U-boats can do something. Um, I think the German position is quite interesting because they're aware that they don't really want another Somme and they don't want a Verdun. So they're search searching for other weapons to try and win the war. And to kind of get into some more specific uh, questions about the Battle of Passchendaele, um, to start, what was kind of Haig's uh, plan and strategy for the upcoming battle? Well, it's interesting because you do see a bit of a, a divergence of opinion within the high command. By the, 19, by the sort of spring of 1917, you have sort of two main views. One is that fundamentally nothing has changed and you still need to break through the front. This was the Nouvelle approach. We need to mass combat power, short shot bombardment, break the line, it's like a thin crust, and then you'll be able to move through and exploit and then restart maneuver warfare. The other point of view is that actually you can't do this. The front is too thick, it's too strong. Therefore, you cannot break through, or at least not yet. Therefore, you have to fight in an avowedly attritional manner. The whole point of operations should not be maneuver, but killing Germans. Um, and a number of British commanders take this approach, what, what, no, what becomes known as the step-by-step -step approach or bite and hold. Its operation should be based around reducing risk, using massed artillery to kill loads of Germans, taking little bits of ground and gradually, you know, moving through Germany's divisions in that way. Haig never really goes with the bite and hold argument. He just doesn't like it. His vision of warfare is always manoeuvre. It's always trying to... This is why Haig's reputation is quite interesting, because Haig, Haig always, is always known as a nutritional general, a stale, unimaginative general that just is happy to kill people as long as we might kill slightly more of the enemy. But this is not really true. Haig is not a nutritional general. 
he wants to and always plans his battles on the the idea that what we need to do is maneuver. And when commanders present him with plans, as they did it in the summer of 1917, for operations that are more limited, based on not going that far, but actually mashing up German divisions, he's never really keen on it. So what you have in the attack at Ypres, it's quite a big attack initially, have four corps, and they're able to go very, very far into the salient. The problem with this is it takes little account of German defensive tactics, which by the summer of 1917 has moved to a defence in depth model, which is based upon sucking the British in across a wide network of defensive fortifications, trenches, pillboxes, exhausting them and then counterattacking when they're weak. So it's allowing the British to come onto them and then striking when they're weak. So this this sort of, you know, these one German officer called it the, the, the famous British penetration tactics. And that's what essentially what the army commander, General Goff, is tasked to do. He tries to push very, very deep into the German line. They, they're able to, to make some ground, but ultimately that's because the Germans effectively allow them to take ground that's not that important before counterattacking. And what was the kind of impression from politicians in Britain about the coming offensive and how much influence did they have sort of on uh, the British army? Yeah, again, one of the, um, the things you often hear about um, Haig, or certainly the defenders of Haig, is that he was forced to attack. The politicians were demanding results. And this is not really the case in 1917. Um, Haig presents his views to the war cabinet in June, says, you know, now that we've you know, Nivelle has done his thing. We need to attack in Flanders. And on one of the conferences, Haig sketches out where he wants to go. And Lloyd George is there and watching him like a hawk. And uh, he writes in his memoirs how Haig's thumb, when he was moving his hands across a map, touched the border of Germany. And of course, Lloyd George thought this was all ridiculous. Lloyd George says to him, well, this is all fine, but how are we going to do this? We never even went seven miles on the Somme. You know, you were talking about breaking the line then. We didn't do it. Um, so there is this real dichotomy that Lloyd George is, he will consent to an offensive in Flanders, but he very much wants it to be more of the bite and hold, the limited approach, the, the less risky approach. And he's not impressed with Haig's plans. But no firm decision is made. Haig is allowed to carry on. What effectively happens is there's something of a vacuum in leadership, Haig sort of gets on with his planning and he's not given authorization until very late in the day. So what Haig actually does is the preliminary bombardment begins. He starts shelling the German lines, they've moved all their troops up and they still haven't had actual authorization from London that they can go ahead. Um, but of course, Haig then says, well, you know, I've actually started the preliminary bombardment. So this is a, it's presented a fait accompli really. Um, so then, you know, he gets a sort of curt message saying, yes, you can proceed. But of course, Lord George is expecting to, to be able to sort of hold the reins and pull Haig up whenever he sees fit. And had tactics or strategy begin to shift at this point in the war, given uh, the kind of increasing usage of tanks and uh, airplanes? Yeah, the, the, the tactical situation is always evolving. And it's one of the great myths of the Western Front that, you know, tactics don't change. Tactics change, in, you know, in, in every way between 1914 and 1918. By 1917, I think you see a number of key developments. First of all, 
one of the big problems in 1915 and 1916 was the British, certainly and the French, they didn't have enough artillery. They needed far more artillery on the Western Front than anyone had ever imagined. And they needed to be more accurate and they needed heavier artillery. They also needed more infantry firepower. So they need to give the guys in the trenches more organic firepower, not just a rifle. They need grenades. They need mortars. They need machine guns or some form of, of reasonably light machine guns. They need rifle grenades. They need all kinds of different tactics and, and weapons. 1917, you're beginning to get that. By the time the British fight in 1917, they have much more artillery than they had a year earlier. They have much heavier artillery. They have virtually unlimited shells, loads of high explosive. So the British in 1917 are a different beast than they, as they were in 1916. Um, they have tanks, of course. Um, Flanders is not great for tanks because it's too wet. But you have air power. You have a lot, almost air supremacy in many parts of the, the, the front. So the tactical situation is beginning to change. Well, I mean, it's definitely changing. So the, the cost-benefit analysis changes as well. By 1917, the British can take German positions. They have lots of artillery and they're using it more effectively. But there is still this confusion at the highest, what we might call today an operational level between those commanders who want the bite and hold, the attritional model, and those who want the breakthrough maneuver model. And that is where you get disagreement. Um, tactically, you know, at the lower level, there's lots of stuff going on. There's more artillery, there's more firepower, there's more tanks. But in terms of how this is all integrated into a battle plan, is where you get disagreements. And to kind of get into the battle, uh, can you describe uh, the fighting that occurred during the initial offensives in July and August? Well, you have the initial phase I, I mentioned before where the British take about take the first two objectives, they go quite far, but it's quite heavy and they get counterattacked in the afternoon and the attack bogs down because the German defensive tactics have effectively contained the British attack. Um, and on the afternoon of the first day, it begins to rain. It's 31st of July. And it doesn't stop for about six days. It's, the, it's one of the wettest summers on record. Um, and it rains heavily. One of the problems is you'd, you'd fired about, um, you know, three million shells in a fortnight before this attack. So the ground is, you know, it's, it's blown to pieces. The problem in Flanders, well, there's many problems, but one of the problems is you have quite a thin layer of topsoil, about a meter. Once it's blown away, you have an impermeable layer of blue clay. Um, and so the water just sits on the blue clay. So you, you've also blown away all the natural drainage channels. You've blown the roads away in that. So when it rains heavily, the water's got nowhere to go, so it just stays there. So the battlefield is inundated and it stops operations. And then the British tried to restart things through August, but they, they just tend to produce small scale attacks. So they will attack here and they'll attack there and they'll have one division here and maybe tomorrow, the next day, another division or another few brigades will attack. And this is one of the problems with the British army in the First World War is that often it kind of reverts to these sort of penny packet attacks, which allow the enemy to concentrate fire on each one in turn. So through August, you tell you a whole series of rather depressing, difficult, costly operations that don't really move the line that much and then increase the pressure very much on Haig for, you know, to achieve this great promised victory. And did this kind of pressure on uh, Haig kind of lead him to the continue the offensive in the months of September and October, kind of despite the 
increasingly worse weather. Well, Haig has invested a lot in this battle. This is his baby. So he wanted to succeed, of course. He has put General Goff in charge, who he, he very much believes in. But as the fighting goes on in August, um, Hay puts a brave face on it and, and thinks they've started reasonably well. But he, his frustration grows as, as August carries on. And then eventually he hears word that there's, there's growing rumblings in London about this. So, of course, he begins to get a little worried and he loses faith in General Goff and he thinks this is we're going to need to do something different. So he then turns to General Plumer, who is the British Second Army commander. Now, Plumer is very different to Goff. Goff is one of Haig's protégés. Goff is a cavalryman, aggressive infantry commander, believes in breakthrough, decisive operations. Plumer is not. Plumer is an infantryman, focused very much on artillery, and Plumer is an architect of the bite and hold approach to warfare that, again, Haig has not really been keen on. And he's very much not keen on Plumer. But at this point, he really has nowhere else to go. So he goes to see Plumer on the 23rd of August and says, I need you to take charge of the new offensive. I need you to get up and over the ridge because the, the sort of the, the ridge that they are nearing, they need to get on it to get on drier ground to get better observation. So I need you to do it. And Plumer says, OK, I can do this, but I need I need a lot more artillery and I need time to prepare and I need to do it my way. So I'm not talking about breakthrough. I'm not going to go 5000 yards. I'm going to go maybe 1200 yards. That's about it. And maybe I'll try and do a few of those. And of course, Haig, at this point, is running out of options, so he says OK, and he lets Plumer take charge for what effectively becomes a very different battle in September and October. And did that kind of shift in command and tactics lead to more success in um, you know, fighting throughout the September and October? Very much so, and this is one of the key things that, that I argue in the book, is that Often people see Passchendaele and the Battle of Third Ypres. It's all, it's all terrible. It's terrible for the British. There was no change in tactics. It's just this sort of endless slaughter. And this is really incorrect. There's very different phases of the battle. Plumer comes in in a very different spirit. He understands German tactics. They're not going to aim to drive through the German line. This is going to be about using limited operations that will reduce risk, that will allow artillery supremacy to blow the battlefield away. And that will gradually get the ridge, gradually get onto the ridge. So the first time is the 20th September, where Plumer's first attack goes in. Now, why is there such a break? Well, it takes time for the ground to dry up. Uh, it takes time for Plumer's guns to get in, to get ready. So whereas there's always something rather cavalier about Goff. He's a little bit slipshod. Plumer is attention to detail is Plumer's strength. So all the divisions that are going to be involved in this battle go through whole planning phases, they do tactics, air, air support, they go and see models of the battlefield, they know which objectives they'll be taking. So the idea is that the British will advance about 1,200 yards or 1,500 yards maximum. Again, Goff was planning to do 5,000 yards on the 31st of July. So this is a radical change. And that once they get there, 1,200 yards, they will dig in. And then their artillery will still be able to support them. So when they dig in, they won't be exhausted. They won't be the infantry won't be blown at all. They'll be ready to receive the counterattack. When they receive the counterattack, then they'll blow it away. And this is what happens on the 20th of September, the Battle of Menin Road. So you have a massive battle goes in, an enormous artillery preliminary bombardment, an enormous creeping barrage. 
the artillery will move. Um, and Plumer takes, you know, again, it's almost a classic bite and hold. They, they managed to take the position, take 1,200 yards. And then uh, the German mat, Germans mount the counterattacks, but they get um, tauntish reds. They, get, they just have to move through curtains of artillery fire. And of course, none of the counterattacks succeed. So Plumer's genius is being able to do this on a repeated basis. So because he's planned for this, so that after another six days, he mounts a second operation, his second step, the Battle of Polygon Wood on the 26th of September. Again, what happens is they go forward about 12 to 1500 yards after massive artillery support. And at this point, um, and again, they hold all their objectives. Counterattacks come in. Again, they are wiped out. And it's at this point that the Germans get really worried. So the Germans start to change their tactics. So they stop the counterattacks because they don't work. And they agree they need to mount spoiling attacks to try and interfere with the British before their attacks go in, to try and get them to man their trenches in more heavier numbers so that they can be shelled. And, and what happens then for the third step is the Battle of Broodsinder, um, where, again, Plumer does exactly what he's done. This is straight out of his playbook, heavy artillery support, 12 to 1,500 yards. They make the attack. Uh, and again, they're very, very successful. The Germans had planned this really big counterattack on the morning of the 4th of October because um, they knew another, another step was coming. So they plan it for um, 10 past six in the morning of the 4th. But of course, the problem is that the British zero hour is 10 minutes before their zero hour. So the German trenches are packed. They're ready to go forward when, of course, the British creeping barrage roars into life and causing all kinds of carnage. So the Battle of Broadsinder on the 4th of October is really the high point of the offensive, where at this point, you know, the Germans are suffering very, very badly. Uh, Plumer's operations aren't cheap in terms of casualties, but they really do serious damage to the enemy. And in about 10 days in late September, the German army suffer over 35,000 casualties. So they're really getting worn down. And after Broadsinder, the Allies are over a lot of the high ground that they had been struggling through for most of August. Uh, to this point, the German high commander are really considering uh, a major withdrawal from Flanders. They're talking about essentially the, the problem they have, though, is once they once they get off the remaining high ground around Passchendaele, there's no more obvious defensive lines uh, to, to go to. So they don't really know where they're going to retreat to, but they're considering, you know, we can't really continue to take this hammering so we've got to retreat so they begin to sketch out a a rear defensive line uh, as well it's, it's really far away from the battlefield and they're considering this um until at the moment on 7th of october the, the rains return and that window of opportunity that plumer had uh, had opened closes and uh, to kind of follow up uh, with the Germans, that their kind of defensive tactics and tactics overall be kind of changed as the battle dragged on and their casualties continued to mount? Yeah, I think the German story of the battle is very interesting. And a lot of, certainly a lot of British historians have never really looked at it. Um, the Germans are quite happy in this early stages of the battle. It's proceeding in the way that they imagined. The British are trying to break through. They know how to deal with that. They can suck them in and they counterattack. They can uh, trade space for time in certain places. They can exhaust the British and they can make the British lose huge casualties. Plumer's tactics are very difficult to deal with. And the Germans have this whole debate 
after Menin Road and Polygon Wood. And they said, well, the problem is there's not a lot we can do about these bites, these enormous attacks that are coming against us. So we can either, you know, put more men in the trenches to try and resist the initial bite, or we can try and do some kind of different counterattacks. So initially they 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 reinforced their front lines for Polygon Wood, but those forward troops are annihilated in the initial bombardment, as many people warned that they would be. So that they can't stop the problem is they can't stop the bite. They can't stop artillery supremacy that the British have. So they're, they're, they're initially quite puzzled with what Plume is doing. They look at the Battle of Men in Road and they're, they're a bit confused. They're thinking, why aren't the British pushing forward? Why aren't they pushing on? And they don't seem to get that that's not what Plumer is trying to achieve. So they mount these counterattacks, which get torn to pieces. And it's after Broadsinder, the third step, that the German high command effectively realise there's nothing they can do. They can't, the counterattacks don't work because Plume has too many guns and if they try and mount these counterattacks, they get torn to pieces. And they can't resist the initial bite because the, the artillery is too powerful. So they just have to sit there and take it effectively. Um, or they have to mount some kind of major withdrawal, which they consider. So the tactics is very interesting. And ultimately what this reveals is that German tactics had been very successful during the war, defensive tactics. But this point reveals there's really nowhere else the Germans can go. They are running out of room and the British are becoming more effective. The British are really beginning to hurt them. And they don't know what to do because, you know, how do they how do they resist this in an efficient way? And the answer is they can't really. And the rain kind of returns in mid-October. Um, why did the British High Command kind of insist on taking Passchendaele? Well, this is one of the great controversies of the battle. And Haig has been heavily criticised for continuing the battle after Broadsinder. And I criticise him in the book for this. Um, ultimately, there is a belief that they want to take the remaining pieces of higher ground at Passchendaele uh, for fear of being overlooked by enemy positions. And there is definitely something to that. The other reason, I think, is that Haig feels he has to... Um, he has to finish the job. He has to get on top of the ridge for his own, because he's promised so much with the battle. So in a sense, to, to sort of to admit failure after Broadsinder is very difficult for Haig. And he seems to think that the Germans are near collapse, that they are nearly getting there. So he continues to push on. The problem is when they try and push on um, in on the 9th and 12th of October, the ground is so bad that the artillery is, is quite weak. Because um, at this point, the British have gone quite far. They've actually gone gone quite a long way. And the whole problem of moving up guns, ammunition, supplies across a, a terribly devastated, uh, muddy zone is logistically very, very difficult for them. So their artillery is getting weaker. Um, the ground is terrible, so infantry can't move across it. So this sort of stops the attacks on the 9th and the 12th. And of course, then the, the Hague goes to see the Canadian Corps commander, Sir Arthur Curry, and asks for him and the Canadians to do the job. And the Canadians managed to take the ridge on the 10th of November. And did the taking of Passchendaele effectively end the battle and the offensive? Yeah, once they get to, um, they actually take the, take the ridge, they take the high point of the ridge on the 10th. Um, they take the ruined village of Passchendaele. Um, and at that point, uh, the weather again closes in. And I think it's, it's very clear at this point that, hey, there's no more time to do anything. 
there's been an Ita- a collapse on the Italian front. So divisions are being rerouted urgently to the, the Italians. So there's no more reserves. And at that point, it sort of forms a natural end. So it ends unsatisfactorily from, from Haig's perspective. Um, and it's, of course, it's the result of this great controversy about, you know, should the battle have been continued? Should it have been fought? And so on. And to kind of ask some concluding questions, uh, would you consider uh, the offensive to be a success despite the high number of casualties? Yeah, I mean, I think the the problem is with Passchendaele is for so long it's been assumed to be this absolute disaster, this sort of low point. But what I found was that the, the plumer phase of the battle is, you know, largely unknown, really. Um, and I think if you look at what what Plumer showed is that the, you know, fighting on the Western Front is always difficult. It's very tough. But what he showed is that the British are devolving, you know, evolving a method of fighting which takes advantages of their advantages in artillery and air power to really punish the Germans. And, you know, I pose this as a little counterfactual, really. And I call the, the battle sort of lost victory, really. I think, you know, had maybe had the battle begun earlier, maybe in June, maybe had the weather not been so bad. Maybe had Plumer been in charge at the beginning, and if he had been, you know, he'd been given, you know, the the keys to the battle and said, right, you can play it however you want. If he'd have done, you know, he did three big steps, you know, Menin Road, Polygon Wood, and Broadsinder. And had he been able to do, say, three more of them on that scale, then I think there's no doubt that the German army would not have been able to cope. Moreover, it would have been much more likely that after another few blows of this magnitude that the German army would have had to have made some very difficult decisions about what they were going to do, about whether they would need a more significant withdrawal. So I think I wouldn't necessarily call it a, a victory or, or a sort of a, maybe a lost victory. It is a success, but I think it's a tantalizing one because it shows that the tactics are, devel- are developing and changing. And certainly one of the reasons that the German army goes onto the offensive in 1918 is because they know they've reached the end of the road in terms of defending on the Western Front. They can't really do it anymore. And they can't do it because the Allied tactics are becoming much more difficult to to deal with. And they know that if the war goes on and these kind of hammer blows keep going on, then sooner or later they are going to collapse. So it's a lost victory and it's a tantalizing one, I think. And why do you think there is still a controversy surrounding the battle? Well, I think the image of Passchendaele, we have a number of very famous photographs of the battle where you see these sort of soldiers walking across this terribly flooded battlefield. It seems to epitomize the horror and slaughter of the trenches. And it was a terrible battle. It was an awful, awful battle. But there's much more to Passchendaele than this idea that it was just a disaster. And so... I think it will always attract controversy because people will ask, how could this have been fought? How could this have been done? Why did we need to take Passchendaele? It will seem almost devoid of reason. However, you see it within a larger context. I think you can understand why it was fought, how it was fought, and what it really meant. And kind of overall, what do you think the legacy of the battle is? Well, I think... It becomes a great image of the war, of the horrors of the Western Front. There's almost, I mean, most people, when they think of the Western Front, they have in their heads 
images of Passchendaele. Not necessarily the Somme, necessarily Vaidome. They have images of Passchendaele, the flooded landscape, the moonscape, craters filled with water. That's Passchendaele. So that is the image of Passchendaele. Um, and, I, you know, I hope I can sort of just, I guess, revise that, make people look again at it. Um, it. It stands as a symbol of the horrors of war and the horrors of the Western Front. And I think it will always stand for that. Um, however, if people do read my book, I think they want to actually understand it a little bit better. You know, how is it? Is it was it completely devoid of logic and sense? And I argue that it was not. You can disagree with Haig or, or you know, Nivelle or whatever. But actually, if you look at the way the war is being fought in 1917, it reveals, I think, why the war comes to an end the following year. And there's no doubt that Passchendaele plays an important role in that. And what was the most kind of interesting part of your research into the battle? I think for myself, it was it was seeing these tactical change and actually looking at the German side and seeing how difficult they found the battle. Um, and I think that was always the, the, the great question in my own mind when I read accounts of Passchendaele. I was always thinking that this phase in September was really underrated and underexplored. And you look at the German sources and it's very clear that they do see the battle as two halves. The early stages of the battle, they are not worried about it. This is fine. This is the ideal situation. The, the second phase, the bite and hold phase, is a terrible ordeal for them. It is a terrible ordeal, and they do not want to go back to it. And I think that was, for me, the most interesting aspect, just to realize how hard the British were able to push the Germans in that window of opportunity in the late sort of late summer, early autumn of 1917. And my final question is, what advice do you have for young people that are kind of interested or studying in the field of history? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, if, if you're doing it and you love it, I think that's great. And I think, you know, I think it's all about sort of doing what you love and being interested in the aspects of history that, that you're interested in. I think the key thing is to, to read, read the best historians, read the best thinkers, read the best minds of the time. Go back to the original sources if you can. I think, you know, as a historian, I think you can't. It's so difficult now, but we must try not to judge the past by our contemporary morals, our contemporary understanding. It's different. It was different back then. And I think, you know, we have to try and avoid hindsight if at all possible. Um, I think that's what makes history really interesting and important because it gives us balance. Not th Things may be the way they are now, but they were not always this way. Um, and I think if you can approach history, and I certainly would, would approach a lot of it, certainly from my perspective, is that the people, the people were not perhaps as stupid or as idiotic or as immoral as we would like to think. They were real people dealing with really difficult problems and some of them made mistakes as if we were trying to do it we'd make mistakes now some of them were great people and they tried to do good good things and i'm not you know and i think i speak in the sort of military arena and in a in the sort of historical sense but you know we shouldn't underestimate the problems um, of what they had to deal with so again get rid of your hindsight get into the sources and um yeah and enjoy it so we just had that interview with Dr. Lloyd. I hope you really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm, again, very excited for this episode because it's the first episode we've done on the First World War. War first World War. Sorry. Uh, and it's, you know, the First World War, I think, even, you know, a century has just passed, uh, 1918, is always going to be just... 
I mean, the only way I can call it is a tragedy. I think it's just a tragedy because at the end of the day, they called it the war to end all wars. But as we all know, it didn't, you know, it didn't end uh, all wars. I think that's the, for many people, the worst part about it is that all of that sacrifice and fighting didn't necessarily bring an end to a war that, you know, people fought. And the other part, too, is most people assume that that the war would be over by Christmas in 1914. I don't think anyone envisioned it, the war going for four years and the amount of casualties that ended up occurring. But And if they knew, they certainly wouldn't have done it. And again, these sort of great powers just stumbled into the war. But as in particular with the Battle of Passchendaele, I think for many people, specifically the British, uh, uh, Great Britain who fought the majority of the battle, but also Australia, New Zealand, and the Anzac Corps. Uh, it's, I think, representative of a much wider sacrifice and a much wider scar that the war had on Great Britain. Uh, at least for me, from an American perspective, we only got involved in April of 1917, and we didn't really get you know, a massive amount of troops until probably the spring of 1918, and then the war finished in the fall of 1918. So compared to a lot of the other nations that fought in the war, we were... Uh, only in the war for pretty much a year, uh, if anything. And that sort of the toll and sacrifice didn't really resonate with a lot of Americans. And most people, you know, sort of just see the American experience of the First World War as a footnote compared to World War II. And I, again, with the, the Battle of Passchendaele, you know, I think it's interesting because uh, we, you know, German, the German general staff in the aftermath wrote that Germany had been brought to near certain destruction by the Flanders Battle of 1917. And then Lloyd, in Lloyd George's memoir that came out, I believe in 1938, he wrote, Passchendaele was indeed one of the great, greatest disasters of the war. No soldier of any intelligence now defends this senseless campaign. So we see two completely different takes there. Obviously, it's a little bit different with a German after-action report and, you know, David Lloyd George was the prime minister at the time, as obviously a politician would take it. He wasn't necessarily a soldier. He, again, obviously, like a lot of people view Passchendaele, it was sort of just another bloodletting that didn't really accomplish anything. But as uh, Dr. Lloyd argues, and I think as and is revealed through the German perspective, is that the German army was really pushed to the brink with this battle. And again, I think as Dr. Wood mentioned, maybe if the battle had started earlier in June or if the weather hadn't been as bad and if Plumer had been in charge from the beginning, that again, maybe that breakthrough that, you know, the Allies had been looking for for almost two years um, since the start of, you know, the trench warfare might have happened. But it just, I don't think it was meant to be. But it also, again, as he also mentioned, you know, the pressure that was put on in 1917 really forced the Germans to go on the offensive in 1918. As we see with trench warfare, it always favored the defender. You know, the Germans had the luxury of defending, and they were really, really good at it. I mean, they developed impressive tactics and were able to really survive on its own, obviously, by, you know, 1916, Austria, Hungary, and Ottoman empires were shells of their former self. So Germany was pretty much on its own at this point. And... Again, at least for the British, I think, you know, the Battle of Passchendaele, World War One, it's it's like a national scar. And I would I don't know if I would equate it to 
you know, the Vietnam War in a sense, but I think this idea of senseless sacrifice sort of resonates between those two conflicts. You know, for Americans, we don't necessarily talk about Vietnam all that much. And with the First World War, you know, I again, that's my, my sense of it. If, again, anyone from Great Britain who listens to it or Australia or New Zealand listens to this podcast, feel free to reach out. And I would love to hear your perspective on how World War I is seen um, in your country. And it's interesting, even traveling to uh, I spent extensive time in New Zealand and traveling to a lot of these small farm towns um, on our way to go hike and whatnot. There are monuments to the First World War and names of all of those who didn't necessarily come back. And I believe Anzac Day was actually this last month. I don't recall the exact day. Um, and that's to celebrate Gallipoli, but also obviously a lot of the contributions that the Anzacs had on the Western Front and in Greece and pretty much wherever um, the, they fought. And just seeing um, in Queenstown, for example, that just had an extensive monument dedicated to the First World War and just these small towns of only hundreds of people that had just this monument in the center of their uh, towns with just tons of names of young men and boys who died in the war. So, and again, if we just think of the first world war, it just wiped out generations of young men for everyone involved. And at the end of the day, it didn't necessarily accomplish anything in terms of territorial. Obviously the French got Alsace Lorraine back, you know, the British and French sort of split up the German colonies, which weren't that great. So I think that's also part of why it's a tragedy because it didn't necessarily end anything. And as I've said previously, it didn't bring an end to war as it was hoped it would be. So, in you know, I won't go on any longer. That's my sort of sense of it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I definitely going to be doing more episodes on the first world war uh, in the future. And, uh, yeah. And as always, um, if you listen to us on Apple podcast, please, please give us a review. It really helps us out and it helps us, uh, you know, gain new listeners, or if you're on Spotify, please follow us and keep up with new episodes or feel free to kind of share and talk with your friends. I'm always looking for feedback about who I should interview. Uh, so, yeah, I hope you really enjoyed this episode.